Hey everybody, discount, discount, I got a discount. You Are What You Read is brought to you by Book of the Month. And our friends at Book of the Month want you to enjoy some of their fabulous titles for just $9.99. As a Book of the Month member, I love getting that blue box of books each month filled with my selections. Sometimes I get a thriller, other times a romance. Oh, I love it. Historical fiction, memoirs, classics, you name it. Book of the Month has a book just for you, and it's delivered right to your door. When you become a Book of the Month member, you join a community of readers just like you. I'm a fan of Book of the Month app where I can rate and review books, listen to podcasts and audiobooks, and browse hundreds of titles to add to my monthly box. The app makes your membership benefits easily accessible and enjoyable, all at your fingertips. Now back to the discount, you can head to bookofthemonth.com and use code ADRI, that's right, A-D-R-I at checkout to get your first book for $9.99. That's A-D-R-I at checkout. Thank you, Book of the Month. Dear listeners, if you're on BookTok, Bookstagram, or if you visited really any bookstore on planet Earth, you know The Fourth Wing and Now the Iron Flame by our guest, Rebecca Yaros, are the rave. Rebecca had the number one and number two best-selling books in America just last week. Now, in this week's episode of You Are What You Read, we get to know the best-selling author on a whole new level. Rebecca is the wife of a military hero. She's a military kid. She came up in a family of military heroes. She's a mother of six and an adored author who's infused her life into her work to entertain readers everywhere. I think you'll be surprised and delighted by this conversation. I know I'm crazy about Rebecca Yaros. So what's the first thing you read when you were a little kid? Oh, gosh. I think I read Chronicles of Narnia probably when I was like in fifth grade. And then I moved on to Mercedes Lackey and to Anne McCaffrey and to Marion Zimmer Bradley. Mm -hmm. So... I just I've always loved the genre. But you started out with C.S. Lewis. I did. It was the it was the most readily accessible books like in my classroom, um, and I had this like bet with another kid in the fifth grade classroom as to who could finish them first. Wow! So you won, obviously. I did. I did. And then you stuck with it. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you a question. Sure. I, I want to set up the world of this novel now. Book number one is is Fourth Wing. Okay. And then there's a second book that picks up where it leaves off called Iron Flame. Yes. In, in the fantasy genre, sequels are the lifeblood of the genre. Right. They really are because people become addicted to the worlds, these imaginary worlds. But what I found so compelling about your work is that I so related to Violet, your protagonist. She's fraught. She's got problems. People in her family don't understand her. The world doesn't get her. And she's in mortal danger. She's in mortal danger at War College. Yes. Now, can you now tell everybody about this War College and how you created it? And I bet it goes back to that fifth grade room where you were trying to beat somebody reading C.S. Lewis. <laughs> it's, um, so it's a War College for Dragon Riders. 
And well, not just for dragon riders, there's uh, four quadrants. You can be a healer, you can go in for infantry, you can go in for riders or the scribes. Scribe. Yes. The scribes. And they're all the military officers of this kingdom, right? So this is like the elite, kind of like um, our West Point, if you would. And there's four different Mm -hmm. majors. And if you enter the dragon riders quadrant, you're a volunteer. But the kind of rules are you graduate or you die because dragon riders don't bond weak riders. They refuse. Amazing. So the dragon riders are represent the helplessness often we feel when we're young, don't they? No, to me, they actually represent more of understanding your own bravery and what you're willing to do um, to have to have powers and what you're willing to put yourself through. To me, the dragon riders are more like um, they're all very self-assured except for Violet because Violet, Violet's kind of been voluntold that she'll join the riders because this is her family lineage. And that instead of being a scribe, which is what she's been trained to do with the keepers of history and uh, and in the news, she's forced into the writer's quadrant by her mother, who is the commanding general. And so to me, being a writer is more about accepting who you are and what your own limits are and um, finding out if you're worthy of one of these one of these dragons. Yeah, but you've got to prove yourself. Yes, so you're right. So it's really about testing your metal. Yes. Well, because I don't want to give away too much, yeah. but I, I, what I love about her is that she's resilient when she has no reason to be. Where did that come from, Rebecca? Where did you decide that, that your protagonist was going to be fraught with, with, the way pe- with people's images of her as opposed to how she felt about herself. So Violet has Ehlers-Danlos, which is a connective tissue disorder. It's the same connective tissue disorder that I have, that my sons have. She's chronically ill. And um, I decided that it would be fascinating to see a chronically ill protagonist achieve all of these, what you would consider insurmountable odds by using her wits and her tenacity over what... Um, would be considered, you know, just general physical strength and ability as like so many other fantasy novels. And I had never seen that kind of protagonist growing up. And I desperately mm-hmm. wanted to see someone like me succeed. Well, Violet has this, this is so interesting to me because when I was reading, I kept making this note to ask you, Rebecca, was, was Violet's physical challenges, was this a way to put women in the world with the expectation that we must compete was that her mother's lesson in pushing her? But what you're telling me is really interesting, that you suffer from a chronic disease, mm-hmm. and so you wanted to write that ribbon into the waft and weave of this story. Yes. That's really, that's why it feels so real. Yes. Can you tell, can you tell us growing up with that, what that was like? Um, well, we didn't know we had it, um, or I didn't know I had it. Um, I suspect my mother has it too. Uh no one knew. So I had my shoulder reconstructed when I was 18. Um, and I, for almost no apparent reason, um, my bones are brittler, uh, my joints are looser, my skin is more fragile and tears easily. And then as my sons were born, I noticed that they all had these, the same problems too. And so that started mm-hmm. set, set us down a path of diagnosis and it's, they play hockey and they shouldn't. It's one of the sports that they really shouldn't play with, uh, with Ehlers-Danlos, but they're padded up and uh, they really wanted to continue their hockey careers. They gave up, um, they gave up soccer and everything else that you shouldn't play with EDS and just watching them kind of persevere reminded me that we set our own limitations 
And I wanted to show that in a fantasy setting, especially because there's so many times we need accommodations as people with chronic illness and like Violet has with a saddle or things, not really spoilery, um, but things that Violet has as accommodations that this world isn't used to giving. With EDS, Mm -hmm. now can you just say the name of the disease again? EDS stands for? Ehlers-Danlos Syndromes. Okay. So when you have EDS, you can't really see the problem, which is what I loved about this novel. Right. Violet, you can't see her strength, but you know she has it. Mm-hmm. Her strength is intellectual, yes. isn't it? And spiritual in a sense. Yes. Can you speak to why that was important to you in this storytelling? Um, I think... Because in typical fantasy stories, you see a lot of physically strong heroines or sh- people who go in knowing how to fight are already warriors. And Violet's not. She's been trained as a scribe. And one, because of what's going on in her society, it's very important that she has a historical knowledge background and that her entire, her entire self-worth is really based on what she knows and her intelligence. As where she's walking into a situation where everyone else's self-worth is based off of their strength and their cunning, but hers is really based on her wit and her tenacity. And I loved showing that it was capable to succeed, um, that it was capable to succeed with, with the wit and tenacity. When you wrote this, did you set out for it to be an adult novel or did you set out for it to be a young adult novel? Because it reads, it really, honestly, Rebecca, it's an adult novel. Yes. It's, so it's a new adult novel. It's a genre that's right in between YA and adult, which is that area right after you like you turn 18 and you've left home, but your frontal lobe isn't necessarily de- developed. I always laugh that it's like, um, like 2 a.m. in a freshman girl's dorm where someone's puking and someone's holding back their hair and someone's like, I should text my ex. And someone's like, no, you're too good for that. And everyone's trying to figure out where they belong in the world and how they're going to make it without their parents. New adult is to me is just that really messy emotional age where um, the stakes are higher because the mistakes they're making have such bigger consequences and they no longer have those parents to fall back on. And it was always intended to be new adult. So we're talking about basically the sex in the city crowd. College. We're, we're talking about college. College. That's mm-hmm. right. That's right. So, and and co- that's very interesting. Do you go and and speak with the college students? Are you around them much? Oh. <laughs> so I have six kids. And um, my oldest is 26 and my youngest is 10. Uh, so my oldest is, uh, she's a lawyer in Denver. And then my two boys are in college right now. I have a junior at Pratt in New York City and a freshman at uh, Cal State. So un- unfortunately, I, Rebecca, I am Rebecca, how are you doing this? You're going from <laughs> coast to coast here. I, I think it's, mar- it's a marvel. I was so, I, I'm so proud of them for, um, for spreading their wings. But part of me is like, gosh, guys, you couldn't. You couldn't make it a little easier to visit you in like one one visit. You had to, you know, go go to completely different ends of the country. I want to go back to your family. Tell me about your parents. Sure. Um, they're retired army officers. Um, my mom is medac, so she's an army nurse. And my dad was artillery. Uh, my, they are both the children of army brats. My grandfather was the deputy commanding general NORAD. So the military is pretty much all I've almost ever known. Um, we moved around a lot as a kid. So Rebecca, did you notice that? A, did you, have you ever noticed that a lot of kids that are call themselves army brats become actors? I haven't. Have you noticed no, that? I didn't. Is that a trend? 
Oh yeah, so it well it, it's it's kind of always been that way because of the acclimating to new schools, mm. the constant moving. But I in your work, I see it, is it turned you inward as a reader and a writer. Yes, the adapting. You're an adapter, and when you, when you write about your family. I mean, you're crazy about your husband, I which am. I love. He's amazing. You're nuts about him. He sounds great. He's I mean, great. I just saw the the folks at home who are listening can't can't see this, but he made you a map of the kingdom that you <laughs> can use a marker on it, and I think that's the most loving gift any man ever gave his author wife. I think it's amazing. I think time. He um, he retired from the military. He did 22 years and he was an Apache pilot, which is like a dream job. And he gave that up to stay home so that I could focus on my career. And to me, that's always been the greatest okay, this gift. This is a memo. I know. This is a memo <laughs> to every man in America. It really is. I mean, what a doll that he... He's phenomenal. But you've also got six kids. Now, tell us about... Tell us about that. that. I'm one of seven. How many kids in your family? Um, I'm the baby of five. Fantastic. So you're from a big family. Yeah. The baby always has the most children. Really? Yes. In ah. my family, it's true. My sister had four. I, I mean, I'm doing an unofficial poll here, but I've noticed in big families <laughs> that the baby loves having kids because you were our baby, you see. I get that. So we had the experience. Did you babysit as a kid? Um, I babysat as a kid from the time I was like 12. I babysat for families across the street and things like that. But my sister, I will say my sister spent a lot of time with me growing up. Did you want a big family your whole life? Yes. I always wanted a okay. ton of kids. That's your dream. Okay. Yeah. So you had all these beautiful kids. I do. And, and your husband, and he was on board to have a big family too, right? I mean, he kind of had to be, right? And um, we adopted our last. So definitely, if he'd been against it, we would have we had some problems there. Um, but he's really, I think it's been fascinating to watch him leave this military life. And he said, uh, he, he said 20 years, and then he did 22, and he stepped down. Um, and it's been really fascinating to watch him step into to the role where he leads the family. It's been mm-hmm. phenomenal. And I get so many times in interviews, you get asked, like, how do you balance kids and, and work life? And I find it's a fa- it's a question that only gets asked to women. And where some women get... Amen. It, it, it it's is. been asked of me. Right? Yeah, it's cuckoo. It is. And they you all- notice I didn't ask you because I, I don't have to ask. I know. It's a group effort. But I wish... I know. And I wish more men said what, you know, what I say is I couldn't do this at this level. I mean, I wrote like 851,000 words one year. Mm-hmm. I can only do it because of the support of my husband, the support of my my partner, right? Because he's, he's running the home front and he's running the kids and he's running the kids to hockey practice and he's making sure that dinner's there and things are running on time. So it's really been this shift where I run the family to where he runs the family now. It's a a great partnership. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us the story of how you got your first book published? Yeah, sure. Um, So my first book that I wrote didn't sell, which I wish was normalized. I wish more authors talked about that. You always hear about like the darling debuts, the ones that come out and get huge book deals. And I did not. I wrote a fantasy book and it got me an agent, but it didn't sell. It died on submission, which is like when a publishing house 
doesn't offer for it, but they also don't reject it. They're like waiting to see what everyone else will do with it. And so while that was out on um, submission, my husband was leaving for his fourth deployment. He's going to Afghanistan. And I had all these complicated emotions because it was his fourth deployment. He'd already been seriously wounded once. Um, the last deployment, he had taken a bullet in his fuel tank again. So it was kind of like, it was just, we'd had so many close calls. And so I wrote this book where I asked myself if my dad had died in the military, because my parents are military, of course, would I have ever loved my husband? Because I swore I would never marry a soldier. And I wrote this book called Full Measures. And it got picked up and sold so fast that it published a month after he came home from that deployment, which in publishing oh life gosh. is uh-huh. so speedy. Like, because that, that That's turbo. It's on turbo. It was. Um, and it sold really fast and really well. And then suddenly I'm a romance author and I am a romance author at heart. I love romance, but you get so- Oh, I was going to say, there's some of the steamiest mm-hmm. love scenes ever in this book. <laughs> Thank you. And they, ca- you're, listen, give yourself a pat on the back. Violet and Zayden. That's some, that's some, Thank that's you. some hot romance there. It's a romance to see. It's a romance set in a fantasy world. Um, but, it, you know, in publishing, you get stuck with branding, which is kind of like, what can your readers expect from you? And suddenly, all my hopes of, of writing fantasy kind of, you know, they kind of got pushed aside for 10 years because I was I was busy being a very busy romance author. But, you know, you go through the same submission process that anyone does in trad. You have an agent. Agent submits it to publishers. A publisher offers. And then you go into contracts and edits and all that kind of fun stuff. So... So really, you you figured out you were a writer really from being a reader first, didn't you? So I was a reader as a kid, but I was always a writer as a kid. So in fourth grade, I won this like this this young adult author contest, and we were living in Germany, which meant I got to go to the young authors conference in a different city, and they bound my book in this like um, little tiny spiral. You know what I'm talking about? Like, the, like when you're a kid and you have yeah, the spiral yeah, yeah. and they laminated, oh, sure. they laminated all the pages and I had a bio and it said author and it was misspelled and it was amazing because um, I did it, right? I did my own bio. And um, I remember holding that book and thinking, this is my dream life. And if you ever asked me, and I wrote a book like my junior year of high school for honors English, that was like my, my semester long project. But it was, it was just, it was always a dream to me. So someone had asked, like, if you could do anything you wanted to do, I would say, I just want to tell stories for a living thinking that that doesn't happen. Like normal, you know, normal people don't get to just go tell stories for a living. And so I've always been a writer and I was the dork at like slumber parties who would look at who was at the slumber party. And then I would write short stories for everyone that was there. That's fantastic. So, yeah. So that was your gift always is to be the storyteller of whatever group you were in. It was just, it's just a way um, I like, it's, it's a way to control things. So if you're a military kid and you don't have any control or you're a military wife and you don't have any control, there's one area where you have a lot of kids and we all know you have no control when you have a lot of children. But can I, I want to take you back to that for just a second, because this is very intriguing to me reading your work which I think is superb. Thank you. I, 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 do, I do, Rebecca. I think, I think you're, you're heart and soul on the page. You really are. And you know how to make a story move. And these are essential skills, but you elevate them. Thank so you so much. You're to be, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. So my question is, uh, your parents, yeah. 
they have this daughter that obviously is a little different. She wants to be a writer and she's getting, she's, she's winning contests, but they have to be, they have to be behind closed doors going, what are we going to do? She wants to do art and you're from yeah. the military. What is it about that environment of not being a feeling all the time that, you know, we say it so casually that those in the military offer their lives for their country and their beliefs in something. But that really is the foundation of your work, because the stakes of life and death are on every page of your fantasy genre, every page of it. Yeah. Speak to that to everybody, because I don't think people understand, at least maybe I don't, understand the depth, the depth of the commitment of being in the military. I think, um, so most of my books are either military focused or military romance. Um, just because it's, we're such a subculture, meaning, um, not lesser than, but such a different culture with our own acronyms and language and customs that really you can't understand it unless you are a spouse or a brat or give, give us an example. Um, give us an so example. a lot of people don't understand that, you know, how long deployments last or that deployments are only nine to 12 months or sometimes 18 if you're stop lost at the beginning of a war. Most people don't understand that you can't be deployed for, you know, seven years or how we move, um, with the needs of the army. So if my husband is getting promoted and they need this specific job, we don't really have a say that they need us in Colorado, which is home, or they need us in New York, or they don't understand that where you graduate flight school on the order of merit list means what, um, you know, what aircraft you get to choose or what duty station you get to choose. There's just a whole bunch of rules and regs and, um, and the way you live, it's a very communal experience. There are wives, um, like with the first deployments, Jason went to OIF-1. So he's he was there for part of the initial invasion of Iraq. And my friends were having babies with other husbands. And the people, it was the wives, the wives who are there in the delivery room and the wives who are there bringing this baby home and the wives who are there making meals. And when my husband was, he was blown up by an anti-tank landmine that deployment, it was military wives that sat with me in those hours while I waited to hear if he would make it out of surgery. Um, because that is what our lives compromised were, were basically comprised of was being there for each other and supporting each other. The themes of life and death and fourth wing. I mean, yes, you're in a high stakes college because if you don't prove yourself, you're not going to bond and they're going to kill you. But I think I weave it through in the military because I came so close to losing my husband and we did, we lost a, a good number of friends. So honestly, when people ask me, why does this character die? And I have to look at him and say, because in war, that's what happens. Your friends die. Sometimes there's not a rhyme or a reason for it. You can't can't pinpoint it other than to make people accept that people die in war. And it's so funny because some people are like, you're so pro-war in your books. And I'm like, I'm anti-war. All of my books show you what the military does to people over long term and and the the mental effects and, and kind of what it does to you. But um, when you're raised in it, it's really all you know. Rebecca, when you when you look ahead to what you want to write, do you want to write a world without war and military and conflict and competition and and fundamental survival? Do you want to write a book because you can fantasize any world you want? I mean, it's called fantasy. So I find that in writing fantasy, we have the unique ability to examine the world in which we live by creating a different one and by showing you what's wrong in this world. So Biscayeth is overly harsh. It's overly brutal. It's ridiculous. These kids are dying. And I say kids because I'm 42 and they're 20. Um, 
but they're dying, you know, every other page. And it's the, they've had this history hidden from them. And it's interesting that we can use fantasy to examine what's happening in our lives around us. And that's why I would love to have a world that doesn't have war until we do. I think I will always examine what's wrong about it and what we're doing to each other. You've had a lot of interaction with your readers and your readers are so enthusiastic. They're wonderful. Oh, they're so sweet. What's the most wonderful thing you heard from a reader of your work? Two things. I've heard a lot that it's bringing people, the fourth wing is bringing people back to reading people who don't usually read. And that to me is amazing because we live in this society where a 15 second TikTok is, is where our attention span goes. And, um, so to be able to sit down and write and to read a novel is, is really humbling that, that people are choosing to read it. And mostly I think what's been the most humbling is I don't mention that Violet has Ehlers-Danlos or um, Ehlers-Danlos. It's just implied because their technology wouldn't identify it. And the people who have it immediately recognize it within the first chapter or two. And the people who don't have it are, are able-bodied. It takes them a minute to catch on that she's chronically ill and not just weak. Yeah. And the messages I get from other people um, who have Ehlers-Danlos, we, we call each other zebras. Um, so messages from other zebras saying they finally see themselves represented is, is the most humbling experience ever because it's such a not so many people don't know about, about the syndrome. And it's just, it's amazing to see this community come together and, and to see themselves represented. And I'm just really grateful to have been given the opportunity and, and hopeful that I did it right. Rebecca, I don't know if you've had the chance to read the great American author, Paula McLean. I haven't. Okay, you must, okay. because this is going to lead me into my next line of questioning. I'm writing her name uh, down. She, she wrote The Paris Wife, and okay. she was in the United States foster care system. Oh. And you are a champion of foster kids. And I've done some work with foster kids in Virginia. It, it's a, it's, I, I sense this in you that underneath your your passion, what drives you is connection and creating safe haven and spaces for children. I think there's such um, beauty and truth in the way you write. And I, I'd love you to tell folks who don't know you why this is so important to you. For kids in foster care? Yes. Sure. Um, so we we were foster parents for four years, and then our um, we just we felt that kids needed a safe place, and especially unification is all the goal, always the goal. Um, and it's funny to see how my opinion has has shifted, or my my knowledge of foster care has changed in the past ten years or twelve years. So our last placement was supposed to be a a temporary stay, and she um, she stayed with us. We adopted her. She's our youngest daughter. And when she came to us, she didn't have, she didn't have very much. She didn't have, she only had like four sets of pants and four onesies and some formula that her, um, her first mom had picked up. And I remember the feel like my husband was in Afghanistan to start with, which is always my favorite story to tell. I got the call from the social worker. Um, and we were about to stop fostering because we knew we were going to have to PCS, which is military for move. Um, and that we wouldn't, if we had to PCS in the middle of having a placement, that that child would be shifted to another home. And our goal was never to have a child shift to another home. And so when uh, they called and said, we have this child, you get kind of the stats and can you do this temporary placement? It was 
God, the universe, energy, whatever you want to call it, my husband got online in that moment. And I answered, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm on the phone with a social worker right now. You can't see my hands are like typing, like I'm typing this message right now. Um, I said, and they have a placement. What do you want to say? And he's like, yes. And I'm like, well, of course you said yes. I'm, I'm the only one here. You're in Afghanistan. So I'm like, yes, we'll, we'll take her. And I said, but, but we're going to, the, to hockey right now. My four boys have hockey practice. And she said, that's not a problem. We'll bring her to the hockey rink. And I remember thinking, like I said, I think I said like a pizza? Like you're going to bring a baby to a hockey rink, like pe- like a, like a delivery. She's like, yeah, just come outside. I said, okay. Cause they'd always, you know, brought a placement to the house, put my boys on the ice and I walked out and there is my now daughter. And I, I see her for the first time and I get, and they hand me her car seat. And I will still remember the feel of her car seat in this elbow, my right elbow, holding these grocery bags in my left hand and holding my little boy's hands as I walked over to put the stuff in the car. So kids, when they are moved around in foster care, um, anything that, that their things are thrown into, they can be trash bags, they can be grocery bags. This is not the fault of the biological parents. I think there's so much trauma involved in when those kids are removed from the house. I can't imagine you're, you're, you're thinking straight, right? So we, um, once we got her stocked and, and I had to, t- I had to take her shopping. So there was my four boys and, and this new baby and, and me and trying to, to, to walk around and buy all these things we needed because we weren't expecting a baby for a placement. We were expecting a toddler and I had nothing for a baby. I didn't have a swing. I didn't have um, a bouncer. The, I had to raise Bath the tub. No, I, no, tub. nothing. And oh we, uh, we, this is our, this, uh, we've had kids for so long. And so I remember like my second son sitting on the floor, holding her while I made lunches the next morning because I had nowhere to put her down. Um, and so we created a nonprofit that if you're a foster parent, you can come to us and say, Hey, I've got this placement and you get a week's worth of gently used clothing. And my kids personally sort it. And I always tell them like, if you wouldn't wear it to school, it gets, it gets pitched because we take donations um, and, or in a new backpack and an unmarked duffel bag to carry their stuff. So no matter if they're with us or if they end up in another foster family, they have something more dignified. We want to help them move around the system with dignity and that they're unmarked bags because teenagers, I can't imagine, want to be identified as a kid in care. So they're unmarked and those teenagers can take them to sports practice, to sleepovers, to whatever it is they're doing. So it's it's essential to me that these kids move around with dignity because we've seen what happens when they don't. Mm-hmm. And I think- Well, you probably have a special place in your heart for the single teenage mother who tries to get adopted with her baby that she has, they are very hard. They're hard to place. They, Can you speak to that? They are. Um, my husband had our oldest daughter when he was in high school. He didn't have her. He had a, she's my favorite wedding present as I like to call her. So he was a teenage parent. Um, a lot of times these teenagers don't have a lot of places to go and we were never offered a teen mom. Um, meaning we were never called to ask to, to take one in when, when I say the word offered um, to, to take one in, but it's so important that they are. And it's so important that they're kept with their babies because that bond, there is so much trauma. I think that people don't understand. And what happens when you take a baby from its birth mother, regardless of the circumstances, there's, there's a, there's a trauma there that happens to not only the birth mother, but the, but the baby. So mm-hmm. it's, it's very close to my heart that these moms are kept there. And um, it's very close to my heart that when safe, the families can be reunited 
But it's also close to my heart that when it's not safe for that child to return, that the system provide and find a stable a stable home where that child can grow up with loving guardians and caretakers. Like that is tantamount. We have so many kids in the foster system who have been freed for adoption and are not adopted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, which, which is a, it's, it's a failure of our, of our families and our culture, isn't it? I, I, I don't know what causes it. I really wish I did. Um, I can tell you the best place is always a kinship placement. Um, and again, my degrees in history is not in social work. So all I know is what the state of New York taught me during foster classes, which by the way, they're very good. It's like two hours a night, three times, two to three times a week. So yeah. for six months. So you're really educated in making sure the child's put first and understanding the, the trauma kids have been through. I wouldn't say it's a failure in families. I think there are certain circumstances where there are no win scenarios. Well, I don't mean it like a personal failure of the family, but something in the way the world plays out for them yeah. causes the trauma. Yeah. Okay. Whatever. Because we could be here, you know, for a year talking about all the different things it could possibly be. Right. But what's interesting to me about you is you see a problem and you it's very much in your writing. You identify something that needs to be done and your characters get it done. It's not perfect, but they figure their way through the dark yeah. tunnels. Okay. Yeah. That's really a signature of your work. Thank you. And yeah. And, and, it, and, it, and I found that not only I found it inspiring and illuminating. What role does fate play in a person's life? And let's do it in the real world. And then let's go into the fantasy oh, world that you've created. So there are, I think there are fate and there are choices. And I think that we have to make choices in order to, to, to find fate, right? And when I look at things like um, my daughter, um, in the real world, I happened to be in the hospital while her biological mother was in labor. I was visiting another friend who had just had a baby. And our birthdays, are, if you flip around the same numbers, they're we have the same numbers in our birthdays. And when she came, my husband, um, my husband was adopted and she, when she came to us, had his biological father's last name as her middle name or as her, I'm sorry, her, his biological father's last name is her last name and his bio and his adoptive father's name is her middle name. And so I knew there was something that told me the second she was placed with me, this this she belonged she would, in your she in your family stay. right and um mm-hmm. and i was very close with her biological mother um as we got to be um over the years so i think fate plays a, a fate gives you messages that way i also think you have to make the choices so had my husband and i not had the hard conversations of can we foster can we do this and there were times we lived apart for 7 months while she was in care because the army moved him to colorado and and I had to stay in New York and we, we ripped our family apart and he wasn't even deployed. And we were asking ourselves, how long can we do this for? And, you know, cause there, there were still things going on with the family and was she going to be reunified? Was she not? And then finally we both just came to the conclusion of it didn't matter. We couldn't leave her. We would put our family through, you know, through anything, but we couldn't, we couldn't leave her. So I think you see fate that way, but you also, you make the choices that make fate possible. There's something about the power of love. Yes. And it's, again, it's the river upon which you write. 
the power of love, the power of returning to the source, the power of, of mining what's in your soul yeah. that's going to get you through the experience and elevate the experience. Yeah. I mean, I think much of your work, Rebecca, is spiritual. Thank I think you. it's very, very spiritual. Thank you. And, it, it, and I, I'm so thrilled to meet you here because I really didn't know you. And I said, I, I've been reading and I said, hey, I got to meet Rebecca Yaros. I'm kind of crazy about her, the, <laughs> the whole thing. And, uh, and I hope you'll stay in touch and I hope you'll come visit and you bring the whole whole crowd with you, the whole family. And, uh, and thank you. Thank you for your work and for your devotion and your dedication to your craft. I think it's on the page. Thank you. And your fans are so in love with you. And now Ugh. I am too. Oh, thank you. And I just think, yeah, I think that you've, uh, you're making a big difference and you're giving us entertainment that is not only thrilling, exciting, sexy, and romantic, but it's also really rooted in your philosophy you. and in your beliefs. I hope it's and fun. I think that's quite beautiful. And I hope it's, it's fun. I hope it's fun. Yeah. And I hope it I hope people find a found family within it. There's a lot of found family vibes in Fourth Wing. Um, and the idea that if your biological family isn't everything you ever wanted and hoped for, that you can you can form your own family too. I mean, I'm just fascinated by Rebecca Yaros. I hope you all enjoyed getting to know Rebecca and you're going to add her books to your reading lists. Join us for more illuminating conversations as we enter the holiday season with big surprises and giveaways. And don't forget to rate and review the podcast. We love to know your thoughts. You can follow us on Instagram at you are what you read podcast for more updates and giveaways. That's right. I'm telling you, these giveaways, it's the holiday season. You deserve them. Don't miss them. And thank you all for tuning in this week. And always, always thank you for reading. 